This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network, the home of great music podcasts. Visit us at fmpods.com. You are listening to the Dylan Tons Podcast. Welcome to the Dylan Thompson, another installment of What Is It About Bob Dylan? I am sitting with the illustrious Roberta Raycove. She is a partner at the Raycove and Strasburger Advocacy Group. She earned her BA from Pitzer College in Claremont, California, and her MPH at the University of Illinois at Chicago uh, School of Public Health. Among the many impressive accomplishments in Roberta's career, she was a senior vice president for external affairs at Sinai Health System one of the largest providers of health care for low-income people, where she directed federal, state, and local advocacy and helped Sana become a national voice on Medicaid, immigration, immigration justice, and gun violence. Am I remembering this correctly, that you, um, you testified in front of Congress? Um, I testified before the state legislature often, okay. and I, I wrote testimony for okay. my betters who testified before Congress. Yes. I remember you telling me that in Tulsa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was really, it's impressive. Uh, you were appointed to Mayor Lori Lightfoot's Mayor's Health Care Transition Team, and you have served on numerous national and state advocacy councils, and you have won numerous awards for your work. Thank you for being with me today. Well, thanks for having me, Erin. This is great. It's, it's just, it's a delight to talk with you. So let's just jump in. What is it about Bob Dylan? Well, I have been um, a, a huge Dylan fan for a very long time, and I know we're going to talk about origin stories and all that, but what I I loved, you just interviewed Anne-Marie, is it, do I say May or my? I um, say my. So, okay, Anne-Marie, my, and there was a wonderful moment in that interview where she said, he's the greatest artist of our time. And that was so liberating for me because I have a lot of friends who aren't like us, um, don't fall into this category. And they, I know they're rolling their eyes all the time at me. And, and so that is exactly how I feel is that, uh, I'm one of those people who will go around saying, I'm just so lucky to have lived in this time when this unbelievable work is being done by Bob Dylan. And, I know uh, someone once said, I think it might have been Nina or someone on one of your shows, that the Nobel Prize was very freeing for those of you who are academics because you had all these people turning up their noses at you and saying, um, uh, you know, what are you really studying about Bob Dylan? And now you could look at them and say, how's your guy doing? You know, my right. guy got the Nobel Prize. But I really, I, I think that I fall into that category of people who over time have just come to recognize that this is incredible artistry, um, mm-hmm. that this is such an amazing voice, and that there isn't another voice like this, and probably hasn't been. I I would just hearken back. I know this is going to sound corny. I don't know if you ever saw the uh, Leonard Cohn a panel when Dylan won the ASCAP award, but there's mm-hmm. this wonderful point, and this really just sums it up where Leonard Cohen is asked, you know, what is what do you think his impact is on American music? And he says, he sort of veers off from that. He said, mm-hmm. a great heart like Bob Dylan comes along once every 400 years. And he said, and then 
you know, he goes on to talk a little bit about that. And he said his work will be a torch for everybody, you know, many generations moving forward. But this, this kind of thing happens only very rarely. And we're just lucky to have encountered it. And I thought, there it is. That's mm-hmm. the perfect statement. And that 400 years for me, and I said this to, I think to Rebecca, or maybe to Emery, that I say he's, he's America, America's Shakespeare. And yeah. I've had folks laugh at me when I say that. And yeah, then, then it was Nina that said the Nobel Prize was sort of liberating for yeah. us. But even now people question whether he deserved it. There was just an article that ran that he didn't deserve it. I highly disagree with that. Oh, but, yes. I, I, I thought, you know, um, I can't, it may have been Michael Gray or somebody who said mm-hmm. I disagreed with it at the time, mm-hmm. not because I thought he didn't deserve it, but I thought it didn't encapsulate all that he is. Right. And uh, it, literature was too small of a category. So, you know, I, I obviously, I'm in your camp. And when the, the, the American Writers Museum had this really terrific um, exhibit for a year, Dylan Goes Electric, that's a small mm-hmm. museum, small but mighty museum here in Chicago. It was really great. They had the electric guitar there, you know, for about mm-hmm. a year. And you could go and, and wonderful writers speaking. But one of the things they did was they had a whole wall of quotes from people, uh, from, you know, all kinds of famous people who have been artists who have been influenced by him. And that was the theme that ran through it, saying there there is no one like this. Right, and, and he is our and he is our Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and he is he is our Picasso. He is you know all of those things, and um, uh, so I'm I'm that's the camp I sit in. I yeah, we're, well we're in good company then, <laughs> right? Um, but and it's all the influence I think is an important piece to that. When we look at now, um, what Rebecca Slayman is doing with the philosopher of modern yeah. song, and you know she's influenced by or inspired by what Dylan did in the philosophy of modern song and that those you know those strands kind of go out from Dylan's work to influence other people and that is to me another sign of greatness yes so so what is your origin story with Bob Dylan so I I I I have a real origin story and a Bob Dylan origin story (laughs) so my real origin story is my father was raised in Hibbing Minnesota till he was 12 Get out. And so my, um, Dylan's family, so we're Eastern European Jews, right? And Dylan's family, I think on his, um, father's side came from Ukraine and on his mother's side came from Lithuania. In my case, mm-hmm. my mother's family came from Lithuania, but my father's family came from that part of Eastern Europe that was sometimes Russia and sometimes Poland and you know, sometimes mm-hmm. something else. And, uh, my grandfather, they were, they were cousins, my grandparents. They were family. They met in in Minnesota. Um, but my grandfather came first. He was evading the draft, the, the czar's draft, and somehow found his way to Hibbing, Minnesota, where he was a miner on the Iron Ore Range. And my grandmother, you know, followed. Um, and you went to where your family was, and so that's how they met. Linda Whitehead in Hibbing has really nicely sent me some information because my grandfather was um, in International Workers of the World. There was a big strike on the Iron Range. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that IWW came in, and she had a whole hour on the history of that strike, which um, they did something about it in Hibbing and really nicely mm-hmm. sent it. So that that's my sort of. I wish we were related. We're not, uh, but <laughs> you know, but uh, but you know that that's my sort of genetic origin story. That's cool. Have you been to Hibbing? I okay. So I have not been to Hibbing. My husband oh. and I don't drive. Okay. Someone's going to have to take us there, and and friends of mine do that. I mean, people drove us to Tulsa, so uh, in last October. So I'm either going to have to really lean on my son to drive us up there, or my brother, um, who is a historian, has done a lot of research mm-hmm. on our family. And if he when he comes to town again, I think I could probably get him to. He actually wouldn't mind taking a trip up there. Most not necessarily look at Dylan's stuff, but to look at our family. Um, things. So I, hopefully, because I, it's not easy to get to if you don't drive, right? Hibbing is not super accessible. No, um, no. it's not. We were in Minneapolis, um, St. Paul. I was doing research yeah. for my dissertation, and we happened to be there the end of June, beginning of July, and the government shut down because they couldn't agree on, a fun, on funding. And so all of the archives shut down, and we had nothing to do on July 1st. And then we thought, let's drive up to Hibbing. So that's how I managed yes. to get to Hibbing. But it was it was a four hour drive from from Minneapolis. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm hoping to get there soon and lean mm-hmm. on somebody to to get me there. And so th- so that's my genetic origin story. Cool. And my other origin story is really you know I I was uh I was born in 1950. So ni- when I was in high school, 1964 to 1968. Mm-hmm. I, Dylan was not on my radar. We my friends and I were all British invasion. We we're totally British invasion. And my brother, uh, who is apparently the person who should have been introducing me to Dylan was off at college. So mm-hmm. we didn't really intersect a lot in those years. But, uh, I ended up going to this very lefty, progressive, hippie college in Southern California called Pitzer. It's, I think it's less, a little bit less so now, but then it was a pretty wild place. And, no rules, you know, no rules to rebel against, no anything. I, you know, <laughs> you just, I, and I loved it a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was sitting in someone's dorm room there and they put blonde on blonde on and it was like a thunderclap. And that's, I, that, that's where it, I just, it changed, it not only changed the way I felt about music, but it changed the way I looked at life. You know, it, it it was an album that made you think, well, I can, rules are made to be broken mm-hmm. and we have to look at everything with fresh eyes. And I would, um, I, I was working in the dining hall and I would wait to get paid and then I would go buy another album and every time I would get paid and move forward from there. And that was the start, but there was, it wasn't like I slowly, I started as a fanatic. Mm-hmm. I just... It- you know, I, I went diving into the deep end immediately. I was going to say, you just jumped in. And I just you, jumped in. What you said um, this morning, uh, I listened to Jim's interview with Keith Mainby, and he said that, you know, what Dylan does in terms of language, which I thought was such a beautiful thing to say, was that he shows us that it's a living process that encourages us to engage the world. And right. it seems that, you know, that, that questioning, that, you know, constantly thinking about, how things are perceived and how they're communicated and the communication between, you know, the person who's speaking and the receiver. It's just, 
that's kind of what you're alluding to. And uh, what a beautiful moment to have. And the, the thunderclap issue like, or the image that's just so wonderful because it just it hit you that this is something yeah. special. You know, there's that wonderful Joan Baez quote when she mm-hmm. said something about when people get into Dylan, they get in really very deep. Yeah. And I, I just, that's where I started. And I think there's that delineation. I don't know that there are many casual Bob Dylan fans. No. (laughs) I I think it is an obsession. Yeah. As I say to people, you know, I used to say it's a minor obsession. I I could, you know, move away from it if I want to, but that actually isn't true. So why not just claim it? That is an inaccurate depiction of how we feel about Dylan. Yeah. So, we know that Dylan has said famously in the 1965 San Francisco press conference that he's a song and dance man. And so he focuses quite a bit on performance. And I'm interested to know um, your, about your first comfor- concert. Um, if you became a fan in, you know, the 60s, then what, when did you first see him live? So, and so, what was that experience? So first of all, I'm going to say I'm really jealous of my husband because the first time he saw him live was at the Isle of Wight. <laughs> so is there is there an is there a better origin story? They were camping or whatever they were up on the hill. You know, he's British. They were camping up on the hilltop, and he, the first time he saw him was there. And then I was also when we were all in Tulsa, we were sitting around having pizza, mm-hmm. and everybody could vividly remember their first concert. I can't. I've seen him many many times. You know, he comes mm-hmm. through Chicago a lot. So I've been lucky enough to see him here. I've seen him in North Carolina. Um, uh, I've seen him in Madison, Wisconsin. I honestly, and everyone's giving the set list, and I was feeling so inadequate because <laughs> I'm thinking, I honestly, I know I, I, I just don't have that one in my memory bank. And I, I was just talking to, do you know Michael Glover Smith, the, the yes. filmmaker? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so I was just, communicating with he lives here in chicago and we we met in the cafe and um we not on purpose we were just both in there and looked and said wait i know you and that's hilarious uh, i i met up with him in in washington when we saw dylan in dc yeah so he has kind of a he has kind of a photographic memory of Mm -hmm. every single concert he's been to and then when we were in tulsa we were sitting around having our pizza and all of you i think rob started saying when was your first concert then they're all just really off the set list and so i think and it's interesting because i remember other first concerts and i i said to michael i don't really i clearly remember a couple certainly the rough and rowdy ways one was very significant because it was this wonderful return i have very vivid memories of seeing dylan and and willie nelson at a baseball minor league baseball park oh that was a great tour oh you, you cannot imagine how much fun that was yeah um, and I, you know, I, 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 I remember sort of, you know, okay, the, this was the Mavis Staples concert. This was the mm-hmm. concert where he did the Frank Sinatra songs. And, uh, uh, this was a really terrible concert at Northwestern University where we walked out saying, well, you know, it's not always at his best, but, um, I don't remember my first concert. And I think it's partly because when I go to see Dylan, I sort of go into a different place. And okay. I'm not, I'm not focused, and I'm not focused. I could give you, Patti Smith is my other musical obsession. I can tell you the details of every Patti Smith thing I've been to. 
and and I can remember what she wore and whatever. And for whatever reason, with with Bob, that's not the case for me. And I think it's because I'm so excited that mm-hmm. I'm not operating on all cylinders when I'm there. So I know that's like a bad answer. And it's not. I feel I feel so strongly that perform his art his truest artist performance. And so I wish I could comment on it more. And I can I certainly can on Rough and Rowdy Ways because that was so vivid. Um but you know, we've seen him all over the place here and in different kinds of venues. But my husband will say, Oh yeah, he did this, he closed with this, he you know, I'm like, Did he? You know, <laughs> it's wow. funny though. I I have a similar. I know what my first concert was. I I have that down. But when I start to think about when the times I've seen him, I'm like, oh yeah, I saw him there too. I forget some of the concerts I've seen him. And so I don't think it's an, an inadequate answer that you're giving. I think it's almost an embarrassment of riches that you've seen him so many times that you can't remember all of the times you've seen him. I'm yeah, jealous I- of that. <laughs> Well, you know, again, he comes through here a lot. He mm-hmm. like he he comes through Chicago a lot. He likes venues. I we have all these mm-hmm. different venues. I think there was one where he was skipping around the city to five different venues or something, you know, over a, a longer stay. Uh so we have that it, it, we have that opportunity and uh I saw him in North Carolina because friends of ours, you know, called up and said he's coming. You want us to buy tickets and and would you fly out here? And we're like, yes, you know. <laughs> the answer we will. is always yes. <laughs> the answer is always yes. I had a, you know, I had a, a younger colleague at work who knew I couldn't, no one wanted me to drive when I did drive. And, and he, Dylan was going to be in Madison, but not Chicago. And he goes, I'm taking you because I can't mm-hmm. bear for you to miss it. So people, but I have never, for example, seen him at the Beacon, which I would really, really, really love to do. Neither have I, and I grew up in New Jersey, and so my plan is when, I'm fingers crossed, he announces the Beacon shows for November, I'm going. I don't care if I go into debt for the rest of my life for it. So you right. should come, too. <laughs> well, come, too, and I don't care whatever it costs. And, <laughs> and because, again, for him, more so than for so many other artists, when you see him, the work is in the state of becoming all the time. And, mm-hmm. and so as a performer, it, it's hard to explain to people. You know, I would have, I had almost ended a friendship with my oldest friend because she's like, well, he doesn't do what people want and he changes the songs and it's so bad. And I say, like, I can't even talk to you, you know, I, but, um, but that, that constant state of creation and performance. Mm-hmm. is just so amazing. And I don't know that there's anyone else who actually does that. And I think people, I, I agree, people don't understand that he's not a legacy act. He's not going to come out Never. and perform what you want. And even, you know, Court and I talked about this, that people will say, oh, he didn't do X, Y, and Z. Uh, like, he didn't do the, the things that they wanted him to see, or they wanted him to do, and they wanted they want him to come out with, an acoustic guitar and be, you know, pre-electric Dylan, but he's not going to do that for you. And even if he did perform the songs that you wanted to hear, he would be doing them the way he wants to do them now and not in the way that you think, you know, that you know them from an album, if you are, 
a casual Dylan fan. Yeah. You know? And I, you know, I, I love the surprise of I do too. the performances. That's, we had, so we, we went to one, I bought tickets, our, when I was at Sinai, our, um, uh, facilities VP was just like me. And we had someone who worked for both of us who didn't know much about Dylan heard us talking about it all the time. And I was taking my friend, my, I was my, my colleague who was a Dylan fan. I bought tickets for him and his wife. We said, come as our guests. And we were all going. And this gentleman who worked for us, who had never been, he somehow, someone gave him a really, really good ticket. And he went, and of course, that was during the um, Shadows in the Night phase. And he was so baffled, you know, afterwards. He said to us, are you sure about this? You know? And we said, you just have to go with it, Jesse. Just yeah. go with it. It's- enjoy Yeah, you have to enjoy it. So I'm interested, there is a follow-up. Um, what was the concert that was terrible? The concert that was terrible was, I live in Evanston, where Northwestern University is, and uh, I mean, I've read some people like this concert, but it was a, it, the stage was like constantly dark. They, Dylan had us back to us for a very good part of the performance, and mm-hmm. it was just, I don't expect him to engage, you know, but <laughs> it, it seemed like he was sad. You know, to be there. It it didn't see, I think, you know, he talks about this when he talks about performance that sometimes it just doesn't happen. And that was yeah. that night we, we walked home. It's not that far for us. And we were saying, well, you know, on this, uh, on our, our broad group of Dylan concerts, this probably won't be at the top, okay. but it's always worth going. Somebody in your 80s session at Tulsa, which I really love, this woman's writing a book on creativity, and she said this wonderful statement, we have to allow our geniuses their failures. Mm-hmm. I forget and who that was, but I love that statement as well. Isn't that, I, I love yeah. the statement. I my I think my husband got her name because he talked to her afterwards, but uh, I thought, so even the failures are interesting. I agree with that, that, you know, we have to give them space to kind of figure out you know, where they go next, and it's not right. always going to be successful. What was the best concert you've ever been to? On the flip side of that. So, I would say, I loved the baseball concert. Mm-hmm. Because it was really intimate. We were in a pretty small ballpark in Schaumburg, Illinois. Mm-hmm. It was very joyous. The band was terrific. But it was this really incredibly fun concert uh it it was just he was having fun we were having fun we were eating hot dogs and and drinking (laughs) beer and and all the willie nelson fans were high and um (laughs) it it was just it was this really it was like being in kind of a really big living room yeah so i would say of all the concerts i've been to i enjoyed that one the most and i would say the the Rough and Rowdy Ways concert, which was the second on the tour, mm-hmm. because it was our first concert. We'd been to a little something at the Old Town School, but the first concert when the pandemic ended, mm-hmm. not ended, but the first concert when we could go. I'm a public health person. It hasn't ended, but but we could uh, we we could go back into this beautiful auditorium and see him. And I I think I had written to you that I'm really trying to put together 
putting together my public health hat and my Dylan hat, really thinking about what I'm his guide to the pandemic, starting <laughs> with starting his being our guide to how yes. to live through a pandemic. So so beginning um, with dropping most murder, most foul, and then through everything, you know, through through rough and rowdy ways through shadow kingdom and through um then this this joyous reopening that sort of announced we can go back and hear live music again and how that i've been doing a lot of reading on art during pandemics and his his approach is really different but i have no idea where i'm going with it but that concert was really meaningful because mm-hmm. of that you know, I'm mean, I'm like I'm sitting here like do it, do it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, that. I, 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 you <laughs> know, you you go down all these rabbit holes about uh, pandemic art and the Black Death, and you know what? So, but okay. yeah, that's fascinating. Nina wrote something akin to that, um, not mm-hmm. going through the public health, but just the idea of Shadow Kingdom. Um, she did it for the Setlist book, um, mm-hmm. but the idea of it being this, I the this you know, unifying event, and we thought we were going to watch something live, but it wasn't live, and just how we were, it really is reflective of the moment, but you coming from your perspective in, in public health would just add so much to that conversation, so I'm going to champion you writing that now. I'm, I'm going to I'm, beg, I'm, I'm going to I'm, beg I'm, you about it. <laughs> I'm good, because I'm going to work on it, and I thought about uh, Shadow Kingdom in a way, at a time when we couldn't travel, mm-hmm. he took us somewhere. Yeah. At a time when we couldn't gather, he let us gather, you know, and it, it, that, that thing about opening the chat for mm-hmm. Shadow Kingdom for that half an hour. So, yes. hi, I'm here from Finland, you know, and it I'm here so from, good. from wherever. So it, 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 it was a gathering and it was, but he, he took us to Marseille. He took us to a different time period, it was very different from what everybody else was doing with their at-home concerts, which were all great. But, of course, he's not going to do something like anybody else in the world. No. And the imagination of Shadow Kingdom in that moment in time is really something special. But you're also, and this is not my point, it's Nina's, you're also very conscious of the fact that we are still in a pandemic because they're all masked. They're all masked. Yes. And, and I think, you know, when he dropped Murder Most Foul, the message was almost, I know you're there. Be careful. I'm here. You know, it was oh, this really, that. you know, it was this really kind of sweet moment of mm-hmm. who knows when he was planning on releasing that song, but I really felt like we were all at that point really scared, mm-hmm. really terrified. Right. Yeah. I mean, you were, you were afraid when you touched a light post. We right. still didn't know. We didn't know about transmission. We there were was wiping no down groceries. And we were, mail. you know, wiping yeah. all, all, all that stuff. And we were living and we were isolated and we were sad. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, along comes Bob and goes, hi, you know, hi. And here, here's a half hour guide to American history just for you right. that I did and be vigilant and I care about you. And also another time when the, the country had gone through something that was frightening and, mm-hmm. and traumatic and we survived. And so there's a little bit, even though the, I mean, I don't, yeah. I can't listen to Murder Most Foul without crying because it's so emotional, but it's still, right. you know, there's still maybe a tinge of hope to it that we got through that as well. 
Right. And, and he, he wasn't sending us, you know, Yo-Yo Ma would do these wonderful concerts of songs of comfort. That wasn't Bob. He wasn't doing songs of comfort for no. us, was he? He wasn't playing that role. He was saying, Hey, I'm going to give you something you can really have a great time with. And, and it's really challenging because I know that's, that's what you need. You don't need anyone telling you, I love you. You know, I, I'm comforting you. You need someone to say, Get off your ass and think about this, right? We don't need celebrities singing Imagine on Zoom for us. No, no, not at all. And I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything that is going to be inspirational for you. <laughs> I'm going to scare you half to death. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge every brain cell you have. And, right. That's yeah. hilarious. All right. So we have talked about this via email and you are much more positive than I am. So there is an end date on the Rough and Rowdy Ways Tour of 2024. And there's speculation that he's going to end, stop touring and that date and retire. What does a post-Dylan touring world look like for us? As, you know, as I said to you, Many times. I, I don't I don't accept the concept of, of a postulant world period. Uh, and I I think the tour ends I think his live performances end when he says they will. And one thing that struck me and and then I'll get to your question, but okay. one thing that struck me um listening to the Rome concert, he oh. sounds terrific. He looks great. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, you know, Nancy Pelosi's the same age he is, and she's running around the country, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and so, hey, if she can do it, why can't he do it? He has probably a lot more support, and um, yeah. So I, I'm just gonna reject the concept. Probably, you know, it's wacky of me to do that, but I will. Um, but I think that it's not the question maybe you're asking isn't so much what if he doesn't tour it's what would a post Dylan walks among us no um, I don't want to ask that yeah. question okay. that, I'm just I just asked because I, the post Dylan and I've asked the question that he is you know he's human and therefore you know temporal is he no <laughs> I know, and I, we've been, you know, among, like, Grayley and Court and Jim and Nina, Rob and I, we've been emailing about that recently, and none of us want to touch the post-Dylan world, the post-Dylan yeah. touring world. I don't either. By the way, is, I don't either. Is, is, I don't either. Even in but a space I, that we're uncomfortable with, maybe. So, so maybe what I would say to that, before I start about doing this, Dylan's pandemic article, I, you know, because I'm 72 and I think a lot about how do you stay creative? You know, what are the, what, what does creativity look like, um, as you age? And I, I, you know, I have up on my wall, if you can see my wall in my office, I have, uh, Dolores Huerta, the great, you know, organizer, the great union organizer, and she's in her early 90s and she's still organizing. And then I have Dylan up there too. And I probably need to get a picture of Nancy Pelosi and Patty Smith up there. You know, my 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 later in life idols. Uh, what about to, Hannah Arendt? I mean, well, and well, Hannah didn't live to be very old. I know. I mean, she 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 died at sixty five, but 
But yeah, I mean, she's definitely another one. And so I think the question may be whether he tours or not, what does creativity look like? And certainly from a creativity standpoint, he's just explosive at this stage in his life. We, I'm sure you attended, I don't know if you got to see the, the, the session on the rail car and, and that mm-hmm. Laura was part of that session. Yeah. So he's off there and he, I think he's incapable of not expressing creativity. So mm-hmm. what that will look like will probably take all kinds of shifts. But I don't, while I think performance is his great, one of his greatest arts, it's not his only one. And whatever you get to have is always challenging and always new and always exciting. So to me, that's, if there is a post-performance world, and there may well be, um, despite my, you know, ability to be in a state of denial, <laughs> I, then, then hopefully that it will come at us in different ways. Mm-hmm. I've been really fascinated looking at so much, so many of his paintings because mm-hmm. to me, Dylan is the ultimate Americana artist. Everything he does is about so much, everything he does is about his vision of the United States pretty much. And those paintings are almost, are both kind of an idealized version of an America that may have existed. Mm-hmm. And also, he's the ultimate. We, we always get accused, those of us who live in urban centers, about ignoring flyover country, right? right. His, his stuff is all about flyover country. And, That's a great point. Um, and, and really seeing this America. And I thought about it when my friends drove us to Tulsa, because I've never driven through Arkansas before. Um, I, okay. So, yeah, I've never driven through that part of, I had never driven um, through that, you know, the the Ozarks. I had never done mm-hmm. that, and I'd never stopped in those towns, and they were different from what I expected. So, I think he has a lot of things to say through different medium, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think, I, I think this is a man who simply can't stop creating. And. I'd say, I, I quote Nina a lot, but she said, you know, he makes better use of his time than we do. And I think part of that is just he's constantly in a creative process that yeah. he, he maybe can't sit still. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's lovely. Uh, so I want to throw you a bit of a curveball. I did ask you in the initial questions that um, your impressive career in advocacy we've talked about. And I asked how that intersected with your interest in Dylan. And you gave up, you know, we had a little chat about that. But I do know that you love Hannah Arendt, and you have a good story about um, the potential of Hannah Arendt and Dylan being in the same place at the same time. But so, is so there this a crossover is... between those two interests? Let's talk about well, that. I, well, I, yes. Well, um, actually, at uh, and the I Dylan... apologize for the curveball. No, I no, I, I love <laughs> I love thinking about Hannah Arendt, and in fact, I brought it up in one of the sessions because somebody talked about the public square. Mm-hmm. As uh, uh, in 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 terms of his art and what he's doing in the public square, and of course Hannah Arendt is all about the public square, but what she's really about. And then I'll tell the story because it's such a cute story, <laughs> and it, it has so many cute um, uh, peel offs to it. So I think Hannah Arendt's greatest book is The Human Condition, and in The Human Condition, she writes about 
um, the difference between labor, work, and then what, what you do in the public domain, action, which is action. She, she writes about political action. And then what she writes about is the fact that it's only through action that you can attain immortality. That labor, not that, you know, labor and work have their place, but in labor, you're just, you're creating an object. You know, you're, 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 you're digging out a coal mine. You're making a, you know, you're, you're, ma- you're doing something that's, is in no way permanent. It's going to go away. In work, it's a little bit more, you know, you're, you're, you're different, doing different processes and you may have things to go, but it's only through action that you create things that you can no longer control. So you, you operate in the public space and you, um, in my life now, I would call the systems change. You know, you're, my, my partner and I counsel not always successfully, you know, nonprofits on how do you really change systems? How do you really change what, not the individual, but, but how we function as a system? And, and so in the public space, that's what you do. And her, then she says, by creating something that just keeps moving beyond you. You are creating immortality. That's what immortality is. Mm-hmm. And so for many artists, their work isn't great enough where it's going to do that. It, mm-hmm. It's good, but it's not great, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the things that I know we talked about a little bit, and maybe we're going to talk about later, is, is how do you get subsequent generations to do this but Dylan has already done that in terms of the way his work has influenced other artists and then their work goes on from it and whether they're recreating his songs or um, Margot Price for example talked at the conference about how all of her songwriting goes back to Dylan that was wonderful which was really wonderful right And, and, and you have so many people who say everything I've learned to create I've learned to create through this. So that is, in a sense, his public space. Right. And, and his claim to immortality lies in other people's creativity. And each one of those can go on. It may not be directly, they, the next person may not be relating back to Dylan's work, but they're relating to someone else's creation. So to me, that's the, you know, that, that, that's the Hannah Arendt. Type, but the story. So Samantha Rose Hill, who I've never met but communicated with, is mm-hmm. uh, Hannah Rent's latest biographer, mm-hmm. and she, and and she's apparently a big Dylan person. I'm dying to find <laughs> out because she had posted something about, oh, I got a Dylan assignment. I'm so excited. So she posted on Twitter. I found it. I found it, and it was a dinner at the New School where I knew Bob Dylan and Hannah Rent were in the same room. <laughs> And I so she, this. it's such a great. So she posts mm-hmm. this thing, and and there they are. They're they're having dinner at the new school. It's a dinner for, uh, Yevgeny Yevtushenko. Mm-hmm. And at Dylan's table, he's he it says Mr. and Mrs. Bob Dylan, and you know Kurt Vonnegut's at his table. Mm-hmm. Who apparently doesn't like Dylan very much, you know. And I can't remember who was at Hannah Rent's table. I think John Updike might have been at Hannah Rent's table, but they're in the same room. So she puts this up on Twitter, and this just starts, the world of people who think about Hannah Rent and Bob Dylan is not large, but we're noisy. <laughs> and 
So, uh, there, there's some, there's some website called Philosophers Doing Things mm-hmm. that they immediately put up a little painting of Bob Dylan and Hunter Brent having dinner together, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and then it, you know, just kind of spins out from there of, of people. And even Greil Marcus refers to Hunter Rent in folk music. I was like, oh, he's another one. Yeah. You know, he can join this very small club. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's probably what, 15 of us, you know, in the world. Um, uh, at, at one of the, um, the first online, um, uh, uh, Bob Dylan convention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, um, one of Anne Marie's colleagues, Peter von Huys, gave a whole paper on Bob Dylan, Hunter, Rent, and Memory. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So, who would have guessed? And I said, you know, it was funny. I came up and I said something in the session because people post a lot of pictures. They do sort of vaguely look alike. Mm-hmm. And they post pictures of it. And then this woman came over and just started yelling at me that I shouldn't be saying that all Jews with curly hair look alike and, you know, <laughs> went off on this kind of wacky oh, hair. <laughs> I know. I was saying, well, I'm a Jew with the curly hair and I don't look like them. But <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, people are, they're interesting when they have that, that shroud of, you know, the, the, the internet space. Yeah. Um, grief. Well, I thought, thank you. And even that painting of Hannah Arendt and Dylan having dinner is that public space and like what's created right. beyond Dylan. I love that. Uh, so how does your career in advocacy? I mean, obviously that seems like, um, an, a space where you're acting or living Arendt's philosophies. Um, but how does that inter- intersect with your interest in Dylan? So, so I think this is, if I can go off on this, you please, know, this tangent, please, that, so, so I've worked pretty much my whole adult life in different kinds of advocacy and I love it. And it is, you know, it's not what I do. It's, I feel like it's who I am. And I, I, and I've been inspired by music, you know, by different mm-hmm. music, but, Dylan's music to me is not, it's not inspirational in this area. He's not, he's obviously, and he's the first one to say, he's not a topical songwriter. That's not what he's doing. Um, I always love Phil Oaks, but I don't go back and listen to Phil Oaks anymore, except maybe some of his later stuff like Tape from California, because Mm -hmm. topical songs have a shelf life. Right. And, And, and when, my husband and I visited the Woody Guthrie Center and the Bob Dylan Center in the same week, back in October. And what really struck me was Woody Guthrie is an activist who uses music. And Bob Dylan is an artist whose music gets used by activists. He's doing something else. Right. And, but it's so, um, when I thought about this, I went back and reread, you know, I am the, the president of the Grayley Heron fan club. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, my, my dream in life is to be his publicist because I wanted, his work is so great. And it's so good. And I went back and I reread Grayley's chapter on race mm-hmm. before, last night, um, before we could sit down and talk about it because. And that's Dylan, in, in Dreams and Dialogues. In it's in Dreams and Dialogues, right, right. a book that everybody should buy. It's out in paperback <laughs> now. People were bitching and moaning about the academic price and, and everyone and should here own you this are, book. Uh, yeah. gratis being his, his PR Yeah, everybody <laughs> run out and buy this book if you've heard this. So his chapter on race should really be a separate 
book that he expands on, because Braley really understands thinking about race, too. And, and I, I worked on the west side of Chicago for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very fortunate to be invited to sit at the table in black and brown communities. You know, you're not at the head of the table, but you're invited right. to be a guest at the table. It's a real privilege and to, to be able to do that. And I think about race a lot because of seeing what the impact was in these communities in which there's been so much disinvestment and kind of living that um, in terms of the care we were providing, what we're doing in the community, the number of people who will come into our trauma center who have been shot, you know, all, mm-hmm. all of those things and how that reflects back to how we think about race in this country and how we discount black lives and and all of that. And so I thought about uh, uh, different songs of his and what he does with this. And Grayley goes into it so well. Mm-hmm. But the first one, when um, uh, Only a Pawn in Their Game, which is not at the same level of sophistication as later songs, right. but was so prescient in really understanding one of the reasons we haven't been able to move forward on the issues of poverty and, and other kinds of things in the United States was the, what a really successful ep- effort to separate low-income white people from black Right. And Dylan writes this song at a very young age, very young age. He's very mm-hmm. courageous, I think, about performing it in the settings in which he performs it, because this wasn't something people were talking about very much. But if you think Heather Cox Richardson wrote a whole book about this, how the South won the Civil War. Right. And and he's talking about exactly what she's talking about in there. Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign right. is also trying to bridge this gap. So it's not that it's a call to arms. It's it's a a, a song to make us think about what in my business we talk about is root causes. Mm-hmm. And, and so from that sense, it's a, it's a deeper look. Then you get, you think about, um, uh, Blind Willie McTell. And mm-hmm. with, with Blind Willie McTell, it's not a topical song. It's not a song that, um, is giving you direction about what to do, but it's a song that is taking you down this incredible path to understand what happened to black people in this country since 1619. Right. It is it is a 1619 project song. And, Agreed. You know, I, I think Rayleigh writes really beautifully about how Dylan navigates being the white person doing that mm-hmm. and how carefully he navigates that. So he, he is never... He's never pushing a philosophy. He is, um, uh, he's simply, he's taking us down this road into very deep places so that you come away with a really visceral understanding. I look, I look at Murder Most Foul in the same way, where he's not only giving us a lesson on American history, which he is, but he's giving us a lesson about a lot of the rot. America, um, and he's not telling us what to do. He's just he's he's making us feel it, not lecturing at us, not directing us. But you come away, and all those songs change you, right? They change you. 
And he, he told us early on that that's what he was going to do in yeah. hard rain. He yeah. said, you know, I'll, you know, reflect it from the mountain so all souls can see it. He's not telling you yeah. what to do. He's just telling you what the message is. And I, I, I think, and again, Grayley does a much more sophisticated job yes. of, of <laughs> expressing this, but, um, to be an activist at this time of, of race relations in the United States, you really have to understand that you're not in charge. Right. You're a support. You're an ally. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't, you don't get to lead this. You right. are, you, you, you have to respect where your place is. And I think he does that. He does that really well. And, and yes, he inhabits certain characters and certainly mm -hmm. blind willing to tell you. Really right. feel that, but um, but I think very respectfully. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, we have. I'm going to jump a few questions because I think we've talked a lot. Yeah, I know we've talked quite a lot. A I'm sorry. Them, but no, but it's great. It's just it's I, I'm enjoying so much listening to you and talking with you. And so I'm wondering that question that you alluded to is how do we keep Dylan relevant in younger and future generations? And I know that you have some thoughts on that. Yes, and I'll just tell you very quickly, I had, um, for the first time after the pandemic last summer, I got together mm -hmm. with my brother's whole family, and I have a three-year-old great-nephew who turns out, I, I they wanted to watch, the great-nephews wanted to watch some movie, and No mm -hmm. Direction Home popped up on the screen, and he started going, Bob movie, Bob movie. He's three years old. Oh, I and, love it. <laughs> and, and, and so my niece, my, my niece said he's obsessed with Bob Dylan's greatest hits volume two. <laughs> so I think it's a, it's sort of a great sign that, you know, the yes. music will, will carry on. I think what we have, you know, so much of the great work on Dylan right now is being done by people who are much younger and mm -hmm. it's being done in through media and venues that we don't think about. And we have to really respect where they're going. So right. you alluded to what Rebecca's doing. I mean, I want to be Rebecca when I grow up. She's just so creative and smart. and you know, it's full of late. energy. Yeah. yeah. It's too late for me, but she's like the coolest person I've ever met. And she's such a, and what she's done with this philosopher of modern mm -hmm. song is so yeah. clever. Um, I look at, the evolution of uh, Ian Grant and um, Evan, I always forget his name, Laffer, the Jokerman, mm -hmm. and what they've done, their podcast has really grown and changed and really developed over time. And they, too, have found really different ways of doing this. They just mm -hmm. did a, a, a 35 millimeter showing of um, uh, Maston Anonymous in LA. Yes. Yeah. And they had Larry Charles there. And so they, they're doing this in ways that no one in my generation would ever think about doing and it's or really mine. smart yeah it's really smart what they're doing and mm -hmm. so you know so so and you think about Ray Paget is another right. person who's relatively young he's mm -hmm. 30s I'm assuming and yeah. he also is doing this really great work um, and so I think that you sort of have to trust that the quality of the work Oh, oh! Here's the other thing I want to say. I forgot. Okay, people, okay. People have to stop being snippy about Timothy Chalamet and and doing the movie because are they? Are they yeah, people are like, ooh, I, you know, ooh, you know, you, you probably don't, you know, that he's is. What's this going to be like? And is this going to be a stupid biopic? Who cares? I mean, this is your chance if you if you want to get 
future generate. This is like a PR gift from God. It I, is. I, I, and I'll tell you, I, I talked to Rebecca for the Dylan Tons and we talked about that, about how that is a gift. You're right to future generations because people who love Timothy Chalamet, who don't really care about Dylan, will see the movie to watch it. I know if you want to get the next generation. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, I think Jeff Rosen is, Jeff Rosen cares about legacy, right? Yeah. He, and, and, and so what a smart move. Agreed. And look at the cast. And then people are going, you know, I'm not going to go see it. Why? <laughs> they will. You know, Don't get over it. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, but I, I, I think that you have to sort of trust that the work will carry itself. Look, at I think this is something the Bob Dylan Center and the Bob Dylan Institute are really grappling with, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, there are a lot of good signs that I this agree. will happen. I actually want to fix my great-nephew up with Ray Padgett's daughter, who I think is two, because he said something in his dedication about how she wouldn't let them stop playing Chimes of Freedom and when they... Not Chimes, yeah. sorry, uh, Changing of the Guard, I think. Mm-hmm. And when, when they did stop, then she would cry. So I thought, maybe they could be a pair, you know? <laughs> you making. Yeah, I do think that, Yeah, but still, uh, that it will, I, I'm hopeful that it will go on, and in 400 years, if the Earth is still here, people will be talking about Bob Dylan. So what is your favorite Bob Dylan memory? This will be my last question, and then anything else you want to add, um, I would love to, I'll talk to you all day about Bob Dylan. Um, unquestionably, my favorite Bob Dylan memory is the baseball concert. Okay. Unquestionably. I felt like I was in a living room with him. It was just so sweet and quirky and delightful. That is my absolute favorite of anything. And who was at that concert with you? That you my that husband and I drove out to Schaumburg, Illinois, you know, a place we never go to. I think I had to go out there once to get a left-handed goalie mitt for my son. Um, but other than that, I, I would never go to Shepherd, Illinois. And it was just, it was a beautiful night. It mm-hmm. was a lovely setting. We were really close. And he was really happy. And I just would have stayed there for days. I love that. Because there, that, it kind of goes back to what Paul Williams says about, you know, that ephemeral experience of being with him and yeah. with people. And you said the crowd was happy and you were happy and he seemed happy. And so, again, it really does speak to that interaction between he's singing and dancing and performing for you up there, but then you're responding to him and you're giving the same energy yeah. back to him. And it just makes for a wonderful experience. Yeah. I love that. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I think that that, I, I, I think we've covered a lot. Um, we have. <laughs> and, and I really want to thank you and I hope I didn't jabber too much. No, uh, I mean, I've been just fascinated and I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. This has just been well, wonderful. Well, you know, what is better to find <laughs> somebody that wants to do this with you? You know, I, th- I think, you know, I coordinated a class on Bob Dylan. That's my the one head. I didn't ask. Okay. Uh, no, that's the question. Uh, Please okay. tell me about that class. Very quickly. So one of the you things I'm... You take all the time you want. <laughs> okay. So, so you know, I left my full-time job and kind of constructing this next life. So I've got, you know, we've got our little consulting business and I've got my Bob Dylan world. But we also take, my husband and I uh, take classes at, um, what is the 
the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute in Northwestern. And the model mm-hmm. is that people who are in there actually put together the classes. So with two other people, I put together a class on Bob Dylan. And it was so great because, so a couple of reasons why it was so great were the people, first of all, the first day, you know, a third of the class is like me. <laughs> These guys are coming in with their giant books of lyrics and whatever. <laughs> I love and, it. And, a third of the class kind of knew something, and a third of the class either didn't know anything, but they were a little hostile. So so this this one guy in the class, and this was such a great moment, mm-hmm. He, when we were introducing ourselves, he said, well, I thought he was really punky, so I thought I'd take this class. Well, by the time we got through the class, a couple weeks later, I get an email from him. He goes, guess where I am? I'm in Tulsa. Oh, that's hilarious. And I know. So that, you know, he said, I'm at the Bob Dylan Center. I just can't wait for you to see it because it's so great. And then one, one guy comes into the class and I mean, these are all people over 60 and Mm -hmm. they're, you know, but they were so lively. So the, the really brave people who took the eighties to, to, to present the classes on and he had brought in lyrics for most of the time. And he said, um, he said, I want, I want us to, Pretend we're at a Passover Seder and we're going to go around the room and everybody read a line because this is the most beautiful thing I've ever read. Oh, that's and wonderful. So we go around the room and everybody, you know, everyone's reading a line. And then um, uh, it, the class was sort of driving towards should he have gotten the Nobel Prize. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, everybody was, yes. But when we got to the rough and rowdy section and that class was led by a wonderful doctor who's a huge Dylan fan and he's an mm-hmm. artist and he had flown down to Nashville to see Dylan with his son. And we I think it was probably Key West and the room was just so hushed. And then because at our ages mm-hmm. everybody just said this this music brought them to tears. Rough and rowdy ways just brought so it was it was a lot of fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really wonderful watching the journey people and, and then somebody had been at, uh, 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 the last waltz concert and, oh, wow. yeah, and it was able to relate those stories. One guy kept bringing in to me rare bootlegs, a poster with his ticket on the back. And he'd say, I want you to have all these. I'm like, I can't take these. He goes, no, no, you should own these. These are, you know, <laughs> <laughs> photos he had taken at concerts. You know, so it was it was really just 14 weeks of fun. But by the, when it was up, my husband's like, oh, God, she's going to want to talk about Dylan at home all the time now. Because I know. Poor that, David knows a- more about Dylan than he ever wanted to or thought he wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my husband knows music and he yeah. knows much more about music than I do. But I think, you know, it's a, but Tulsa really, he was the one who said, you, we've got to go back to Tulsa for the conference. So I'm yeah. so glad you did because it gave me yeah. the opportunity to meet you yeah. in person. No, me too. And I had so many wonderful experiences with you. Oh. Talking with you and Michael outside of your hotel room. I know, well, we're right next to each other, right? So and then we great. went downstairs and listened to that con- that concert. Concert. A little and just, while. And just chatting with you. It was just such a well, wonderful and, and experience. Well, and everybody there, I mean, yeah. that that last big dinner we went to in Tulsa where, mm-hmm. you know, we're all getting our pizza and everybody's telling these stories. And maybe you can do an episode on the Venn diagram between people who teach Irish literature I know. And people who teach Dylan, because there's a Venn diagram there. there I think you've got a piece to write about that. You don't teach Irish literature. I don't, but in my PhD, I had to do a Brit lit, and um, as half Irish, I don't 
yeah. clearly love the English, and so I chose Irish modernisms as my Britlet. Um, and so I, I and I took a, a comprehensive exam in it. So I, I am qualified to teach Irish lit. So right. I don't yeah, actively teach it, but I could. Yeah, because there's Grayley and there's Sean right. and there's Rob, <laughs> and it just seems like hmm. You know. Anyway, this has there. been wonderful. It this has, has been so much fun. I'm so grateful to you, and thank oh. you so much. And no, thank I, you. I'm honored. I mean, the people you've had on your on your podcast, I'm like me, but yeah. No, thank but you. that's the brilliance of Dylan fandom and Dylan yeah. studies is that he encourages so many wonderful and intelligent, insightful, learned, knowledgeable people, and you are right up there on the top. Well, of that, well that's very sure. sweet, and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity and <laughs> hope to see you either in Houston or Chicago or someplace or Odense. In <laughs> or Odense, right? Yes. We have to go to Odense. Yes, we I, do. I, I said to Michael, I think we're all gonna go to Odense. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh No no, he was all he's all oh, he's all in. He subscribed good. he has now subscribed to daily uh to Grady Grayley Substack and um, Oh good, good. And, well yeah. Them. I look forward to seeing you guys there. Yeah. I'm going to stop recording. Thank you for listening to the Dylan Tons Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to have the Dylan Tons sent directly to your inbox. And share the Dylan Tons on social media.